Hello, everybody, and welcome to another. No, I fucked it from the beginning. <laughs> Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Musty Matches. I am Kieran Fort and joining me as always, the maestro of Musty Matches, Mark Buckley. Mark, how's it going? Yep, I'm good, thanks. I, I am going to start changing up the question so you have to answer differently. I use that way too much in my everyday life, to be honest. So <laughs> I'm uh, telling you, we're going to do the t-shirts. Uh, we are once again guest free. It is just myself and Mark. Uh, and we're going to be talking about our first tag team match on the list, if you can believe it, uh, <coughs> as as we are in episode 17. It is the Midnight Express of beautiful Bobby Eden and Sweet Stan Lane with their manager, James E. Cornett, against the Southern Boys, Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong from WCW Great American Bash, July the 7th, 1990. The show also notable for Sting finally defeating Ric Flair to become the world champion and the WCW debut of one Big Van Vader. Oh, really? Was it his debut? Yes, he squashed the shit out of Tom Zank. <laughs> I mean, that's the default state of being for Tom Zank, isn't it? Yeah, I rewatched that match recently and Zank, no joke, his entire offense consists of one dropkick. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about Vader. Um, it is Southern Tag Team Action. Um, am I right in thinking, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, this is your first time seeing this match? Yes. Excellent. It might also be my first time seeing the Midnight Express. <gasps> okay. Um, as we've previously alluded to, perhaps not here, but certainly on uh, shows I've done with other people. So when we were, um, were on with... Uh, Alan Forel on one of his shows and when I've done stuff with the Ogdens, I've mentioned before, WWF is not really my nostalgia. WCW is my nostalgia. Mm. I got, much as you did, I got into American wrestling through watching WCW. Only You just I got was... in through a much better WCW <laughs> than what I did. Yeah, I, I was like, like seven or eight years earlier, which kind of accounts for the age gap between us as well, I guess. Mm. Um, and... Um, Great American Bash 1990 was one of the initial crop of WCW VHS tapes released in the UK. Uh, I think, if I'm right, the first four, first four were this, Capital Combat, uh, Halloween Havoc 1991. What a first impression for your product <laughs> that is. Uh, and I think Super Brawl 1, but I could be wrong. And then they followed it up with the Wrestle Wars and, and Super Brawl 2 and 3 and stuff like that. Halloween uh, Havoc 91 is the electric chair show, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and I've, or, uh, kind of along that line, I've always thought of this match as the opener of the Great American Bash, 1990. It is not. It is the fourth match on the pay-per-view. It was just the first match on the tape because this is from the era when WCW would cut three-hour pay-per-views down to fit on two-hour videotapes because they were skin flints and because WCW is always going to WCW. <laughs> um, like, so, for example, on Halloween Havoc 1991, on the on the show, on the pay-per-view, Bobby Eaton has a match. On the VHS tape, that match does not appear, but he still wanders through the back of someone else's promo, sweating in his tights, carrying a pumpkin. <laughs> um, so, uh, this is... Uh, 
a match over 20 years old. So we get the history lesson treatment. Uh, the Southern Boys. So Steve Armstrong is one of the famous Armstrong wrestling family. His dad was Bullet Bob Armstrong, and he was um, he was kind of like a big local deal in the territories um, uh, through the, uh, from the 60s through to the 80s across the southern states. Um, you might also have heard of Steve's brothers, Scott, who has been a WWE referee and producer for a very long time. Brad was arguably the best wrestler of the lot, but sadly not super charismatic. Uh, he was in WCW for an extremely long time and sadly passed away in 2012. And Brian, who I just simply need to tell you his ring name, The Road Dog. That's the Armstrong wrestling family. Tracy Smothers was a long-time Memphis guy. He debuted in 1982. And while he would pop up in other places like Florida, Mid-South and New Japan, uh, would always end up back in Memphis. Uh, he's a he's a decent worker with an abundance of charisma, and he's the master of that particular southern style TV promo, especially as a babyface. Okay, quick thing about Tracy Smothers: according to Cage Match, which means it doesn't capture everything, he's wrestled for at least one hundred and eighty promotions. That does not surprise me whatsoever. I was going to get. We'll get onto what happened to these people after we've talked about the match. We'll kind of go in chronological order. Um, yeah. But Tracy Smothers had a very long and very interesting career. Um, but he and uh, Armstrong formed this, uh, the Wild-Eyed Southern Boys, uh, which was the Wild-Eyed part would come and go. And you'll notice in this match, the ring announcer announces them as the Wild-Eyed Southern Boys, but officially they never used that name in WCW. Oh, okay. Uh, they formed the team in Florida in February 1987 and were teamed together through Florida, Memphis, New Japan, and NWA slash WCW until Armstrong left WCW in April 1992. So they were together for five years solid. Um, the Midnight Express, uh, this bit's going to take a bit longer. Um, the Midnight Express were originally a trio, kind of like a, a bit like the Freebirds. Uh, and in fact, they would use what became known as the Freebird rule when it came to defending tag titles. So any two of the three could defend defend the title in a match. Um, they were formed in the Fuller's Knoxville Territory uh, in around 1979-1980. And they were Randy Rose, Dennis Condre and Norvell Austin. Uh, they would do the act between there and Memphis until about the end of 83 when uh, Condre headed to Mid-South. November 21st, 1983, Condry and Austin wrestle as the Midnight Express at the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum on the undercard of the last ever Jerry Lawler-Andy Kaufman match. Really? Two days, two days later, Condry works the Mid-South TV taping, teaming with Bobby Eaton as the Midnight Express with Jim Cornette as their manager. Um, bonus point time. We've done this on the last couple of episodes. Um one of their opponents in that match was longtime Southern TV jobber Mike Jackson. But the other went on to become quite famous in the business. You want to take a stab at who it was? Mid South 83. Dibiassi? Not a bad guess. Dibiase was kind of a bigger star in in Memphis uh, in mid south at that time. Yeah, I thought Dibiase was a bit was a bit. Um... It was a young Rick Rude, just thirteen months really? into his career. Yeah, and a lot of the uh, Midnight Express's first matches in uh, in mid south, like going on the road, were against Jackson and Rude. Um, this at this point, Rude is still spelling using his actual surname R O O D as well. 
Um, yeah, just a, like a fascinating little piece of trivia, I thought. Uh, Condry and Eaton, they have chemistry from the get-go. You'd think... So I have a Midnight Express compilation, which is no joke about 70 hours of midnight express matches Jeez. and promos and it covers there is uh, there's a bonus disc of stuff that is uh the the like the original midnight express like the trio i talked about mm. but it starts with this mid-south debut and then covers everything up until they leave wcw they you would think condrin eaton had been together for 10 years in their first match um there's a cliche for tag teams which is well-oiled machine and that phrase might as well have been invented for Condry and Eaton they are so smooth they are it's like it's quick tags everything makes sense dismantling jobbers in tv squashes squashes Condry's the ground attack uh Eaton is the air assault and at this time he like he was hitting not everybody was doing top rope leg drops and knee drops and elbow drops he was hitting them smoother than anybody else in american wrestling in 1983 and that would continue like throughout the rest of his career yeah so while he wasn't an innovator when it came to like aerial moves um like he did the basic ones better than anybody else then in the arenas, so there was no pay-per-view at this time like you would do um angles and, and squashes on tv which would build up star versus star matches at the arenas, which like people would pay for. And that generally wouldn't shown, be shown on television uh, or, or it would be shown in a special or, you know, that kind of thing, or clips would appear on the syndicated TV shows. Um, in the arenas, they were revolutionizing tag team wrestling against the likes of the rock and roll express and the fantastics. Um, they would go 20 minutes at a pace. Nobody else was doing. They would bump all of the, over. stop me. If this sounds familiar, I've seen this match. They would bump all over the place for the baby faces. They bounce off each other, look like idiots, but then they cut them off, wear them down, and they would either cheat to win or they'd get disqualified, and the fans would go wild for all of it and be baying for their blood. <laughs> right? Makes sense? Yeah. 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 Um, I watched the match that was so it was supposed to be a six man, but one of the baby faces gets kind of injured before the match and can't compete. So it becomes a um it becomes a handicap match, and it is uh Eaton. Condry and Cornette against Ricky Morton and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Jesus. From 1984 a- and it's amazing. It is red hot and it's it's a fantastic experience just to watch. Even like even now nearly 40 years on, it's an incredible match. In 1985 the trio signed with Jim Crockett Promotions, the largest uh, member of the NWA, which would go on to be renamed. The easiest way to say is the NWA and slash JCP would go on to be renamed WCW. Like it would take a whole show to cover NWA transitioning into WCW, I think. And now they're tearing it up on a nationally viewable stage because JCP was on TBS, the Turner Superstation, which was on cable and was available while it was still based in Atlanta. It was available all over the country, which not many other wrestling promotions were at that time. It was, I think, now I could be wrong, and as I said before, I do like to limit what we get wrong on this show. TBS was national before the WWF really was. Okay. 
So the team are doing two squashes per TV show on a Saturday. Cornette is doing promos before and after each of them, taking over the commentary booth during the matches. So constantly talking, constantly mm. pushing his team. Like they're a hot push star act um, with no end of television time. They're super entertaining uh, and they redo their rock and roll express and Fantastics feuds. Plus they feud with the Road Warriors and Barry Windham and Ron Garvin. In March 1987, Condry just walks out on Jim Crockett Promotions. His last match with Eaton is March the 22nd, 1987. On April the 4th, Stan Lane walks in and he's in the Midnight <laughs> Express with Bobby Eaton and they just roll on. They don't miss a step. So uh, Stan Lane had been around since about 79. Uh, the story goes he is the only wrestler ever personally trained by Ric Flair. So the story they tell on commentary is apparently true. Um, hmm. and was probably best known he has somehow managed to end up in three not necessarily legendary but certainly well known and good tag teams so he was in the midnights with bobby eaton he was uh, in the fabulous ones with steve kern in memphis the awa in florida uh for from 82 to 87 and they feuded with the original Midnights. They had a famous, very bloody feud with the Moondogs in Memphis. And then after this, which we'll get on to later, uh, he would go on to be in the original incarnation of the Heavenly Bodies. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, in fact, so uh, Lane had his last match as one of the fabulous ones just seven weeks before he walked into the Midnight Express. <laughs> <laughs> I think Lane is mechanically a better worker than Condry. Like he's more athletic. Um, he he looks more like a star. Condry is kind of like a. I don't want to call him chubby. He is not. Um, he is less of a gym-looking guy. He looks more like a bar brawler. Rugged. Yes, he's definitely rugged. Um, and uh, I would say Lane has almost as much chemistry with Eaton. So if like Condry and Eaton are a 10 out of 10 on the chemistry state, uh, stakes, Lane and Eaton are, uh, are an eight to nine. Mm. They don't miss a step. They go around again with the rock and rolls and fantastics because it's now another variation of the midnight express doing those uh, feuds. Mm. Uh, and they finally, I think it takes them till 1988 to get the trademark matching gear with the, the diagonal stripe across the back, which mm. one of the things they're known for. Um, throughout the entirety of their uh, run, Condry and Eaton, as far as I saw from watching hours of this stuff, they never once had matching gear. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's ridiculous. Yeah. There's a very famous angle in 1988 where Cornette gets a phone call in the middle of a midnight squash match and says, I know who this is. Why don't you face me like a man next week? And outruns Paul Heyman, who brains him with his cell phone, having called him from backstage. <laughs> and he brings with him Randy Rose and Dennis Condry, the original Midnight Express. And they do Midnight versus Midnight through 1988 and 89 on WCW mm. TV. I'm just getting up to that bit in the set. I haven't seen any of that stuff. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we also, we shouldn't overlook like how integral Jim Cornette was to the act. So people today may know him only as an old man who complains about modern wrestling on a podcast, but he was once the best manager in wrestling, swinging a tennis racket around at ringside. Like he was a master at riling up crowds and commentators and baby faces. Mm. So 
The Wrestling Observer Manager of the Year Award ran from 1983 to 1996, inclusive. When I think I think in '97, uh, Meltzer turned it into non wrestler of the year. So like that was the point when like the WWF and WCW were kind of phasing out managers more. Yeah, um, and it became non wrestler of the year rather than manager. Jimmy Hart won in 1983. Sherry Martel won in 1991, and every single other year, Jim Cornette won. Jesus. Yeah. Um, he got involved in wrestling at 14. Uh, and he was selling programs and doing photos and that kind of thing. Um, and eventually got offered a job by the Jarrett's who ran Memphis a week after his 21st birthday to become a manager. Uh, at the time he teamed up with the Condry and Eaton version of the Midnight Express. He had been a manager for 14 months and he is incredible. Nobody talks like him. Nobody talks as fast as him, as eloquently as him, as creatively as him. He hits all the points to build up and insult their opponents Mm. Um, and letting you know the time and place you can come and pay your money to see your favourites kick the asses of his men. And if you're really lucky, they'll get their hands on Cornette himself. He is a master. Like It's very easy to just think of him as old man yells at cloud, like the Kenny Omega hater, like not moving with the times. But there was a time when he really was an innovator in, in the terms of being a manager and was, mm. uh, he is unquestionably one of the best talkers there has ever been in American wrestling. His early mid South pro miles, I described them as like napalm in a bottle and <laughs> they, they worked. So they, through doing angles with Bill Watts and the rock and roll express, they quite literally turned around a flagging promotion and put business through the roof like mid south was on its knees and uh bill watts went to, was like i don't know what to do called up jerry jarrett who said come mm. to we'll do it we'll do a talent talent trade come to memphis see who you'd like and then you can kind of take them away and he took um uh eaton and condry and made them into his version of the midnight express and took jim Cornette uh mm. and the rock and roll express i think at the same time uh and like uh mid-south was a big man promotion like bill watts himself is a big man and he liked mm. big burly wrestlers um and they were the smallest guys on the roster but they were getting the biggest reactions if you see their arena matches um are you aware of the phenomenon of the rock and roll express like how over they were with teenage girls i wasn't aware of that i knew that they were like over baby faces i didn't know about the teenage they massively appeal to women and and girls and it is constant constant high-pitched screaming like you know the the matches we've we've talked about with uh sarah parkin on the show from ajw around the same period yeah the 80s ajw it's that it's the it's the noise of the 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 dump chigasa match in every rock Jesus. and roll express midnight's match yeah it's mm. it's incredible to listen to so that's the history of the two teams the four the four slash five men in this match the build-up to the matches so as you know pay-per-view matches i like to go and i will try and watch like the previous month's tv to um to get an idea of the story going in well this is wcw 1990 and booking and storytelling aren't really strong points <laughs> so april 9th the samoan swat team uh were supposed to start a program with u.s tag team champions tom zank and brian pillman but they didn't turn up at the TV taping. So WCW found Cornette in the Midnights and went, you're being plugged into this program. 
The Express uh, win the belt in the best match at Capital Combat on May the 19th, when non-legal man Stan Lane hit Zenk in the back of the head with an Enzo Geary and Eaton locks in an inside cradle. They successfully mm. defend against Zenk and Pillman on TV, and then they have a... Uh, it is a really good match, but it's not the level of the other matches they have with them. They have a match with the Rock and Roll Express at Clash of the Champions in June uh, mm. and lose by disqualification, so get to keep the belts. Uh, the commentary on this match we watched claim that Smothers and Armstrong beat the Midnights in a non-title match on TV and that's how they got this shot. So, <laughs> I have three sources for this. According to Cage Match, the only TV match listed there between the two took place on May the 1st and aired on May the 12th. And while the Southern Boys did win, this was before the Midnights even won the title. Wikipedia says that match aired on May the 20th, the day after they won the title. And I went back to the Midnight Express 25th anniversary scrapbook, which contains all of Cornette's notes from every Midnight Express match, from the Eaton and Condry debut all the way up to the end. Mm. The Midnight's lost dark matches on the May 1st and TV tapings to Zenk and Pillman, according to that book, but weren't on the TV shows. Their next TV match was a singles of Pillman over Lane on the 14th. Then they win the belts at the pay-per-view and they had the 20th off. And while they did lose a load of non-title matches to Smother and Armstrong on the road, the only record in that book of them ever having any other TV match against the Southern Boys is October the 15th long after this match and the midnight's won anyway <laughs> so either wcw taped a match sat on it for three weeks and then aired it and used it to start a story retroactively or it never happened the southern boys <laughs> have either won or not won a non-title match that either did or didn't happen against champions who either did or didn't have the titles when it was taped <laughs> yeah WCW gonna WCW. Who was booking that shit? Theseus. <laughs> it was, uh, I think this was, now if I'm right, this is the Jim Hurd era. And he famously did not like the Midnight Express, did not like Jim Cornette. They went to him and said, if you pay us half of the rest of our guarantee, we will leave now and you don't have to deal with us. He was keeping the Midnights off TV. Their presence mm. on TV was just Jim Cornette driving three hours to the TV taping, doing five minutes of promos and leaving again. Jesus. Even as US tag champions, they weren't putting them on television. Heard uh, turned down that... Uh, the, uh, the, the chapter in the book is called The Offer He Couldn't Refuse But Did Anyway. So rather than paying them 300 grand a year each to carry on, he could have paid them 150 grand each to bugger off and mm. not have to deal with, not have to book this talent he wasn't interested in. And they were even like, we will, we'll sit it out. We won't go to the WWF. But he wasn't interested. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it was a pretty shitty time for the Midnight Express at this point. They, um, they were not enjoying uh, being in WCW. And what time did you say that was? Uh, this is 1990. This is now. This is like spring to summer 1990. Because you know the fascinating thing about the Midnight's Express and the list. So there's, from what I can tell, there's only two teams that had more nominated matches than the Midnight Express. Mm -hmm. 
that was the Holy Demon Army mm-hmm. and the Young Bucks. There yeah. was two other teams that had the same number of nominations, which was the Motor City Machine Guns and the Funk Brothers. Wow. Okay. Because uh, I was thinking, but, oh, this is all kind of like slightly more modern teams and, in fact, very much more modern teams than the Midnight Express. But then you said the Funk Brothers as well. Yeah. The So the irony is, so you said Condry and Eaton have better common uh, chemistry. Yes. No Condry and Eaton matches were nominated. Interesting. They're all Eaton and Lane, and they're all from 88 to 1990. Yeah, that's their. So that is their peak TV period. That is their. Um, I assume there. Uh, there's a particular TV match of the Fantastics that's going to be on this list from '88. There's two Fantastics versus Lane and Eaton matches yeah. from around that time. Yeah, yeah. That like that feud in '88 was off the charts. They had such incredible matches. Um, so the the crazy thing about the list is. The, the the southern tag formula is famous. Mm. It's not actually that well represented on the list. Okay. Because I've said that there's five Midnight Express matches. Mm. There's one Rock and Roll Express match nominated. That's against the Midnights. Okay. There's two fantastic matches nominated. That's against the Midnights. Yeah. Um, if you actually look from like 80s to 90s tag teams... Uh, the Rockers, three matches nominated. The Steiners, three matches nominated. Mm. The Nasty Boys had more matches nominated than the Rock and Roll Express. <laughs> uh, the Road Warriors also had two matches nominated. <laughs> well, part of that Nasty Boys thing is my, my fault, as we talked about last week. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think this is quite obviously going to be the only appearance on the 104 for uh, the Southern Boys. Uh, it's also... The only appearance of the Midnights. That was going to be my next question. Uh, yeah. In fact, it's funny because there's, so on the whole list of 104, there's only eight two versus two tag team matches on the list. Huh. Four in Japan and four in uh, in the USA. Technically, there's nine if you count a three-way tag match, which I'm not for this argument. Fair enough. Um, Straight up two on two. The the Japan matches, so four of them, happened within a seven-year period mm. in the 80s to 90s. The US matches across four different decades. <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. It is funny. You got the 90s, the noughties, the 2010s, and the 2020s all yeah. represented. Yeah. Uh, and there will be a lot of variety, and I think at least one of the matches some older fans might not be happy that that got in there and a lot of these uh southern tags didn't the uh the kind of stuff that jim Cornette would not approve of which is ironic because i have a take on this version of the midnight express and one <laughs> of his favorite tag teams <laughs> so let's get into the match then um uh armstrong and smothers are out first doing a funny little jog to the ring piss, fist pumping and going yeah come on like all good 80s babyface tag teams should uh i thought they were really funny to watch their entrance looks like a canned animation from a video game they're they're clearly not feeding off the audience at all and the audience do not care about them um it, it, we should say that this is in baltimore i do believe yeah which is baltimore. not the south yeah um Southern boys attire would not fly in 2020 adorned as it is with Confederate flags. 
Yeah, which is ironic because the the whole shouldn't wear southern flag things. I remember the Briscoes wearing trunks much worse than that up until like 2008, 2009. Yeah. Uh, So here come the beloved heels, the Midnight Express, doing the same little jog. They are much more over than the Southern boys are. Mm. Uh, The music guy either cues their music too late or starts it in the wrong place. Um, I was going to say, it was it meant to start halfway down the bloody round? So it's uh, their famously their music is "The Chase" by Giorgio Moroder from the movie Midnight Express. Great synth tune, but it has a very long kind of wind sound build up before uh, it kicks in. And mm. generally, uh, when it was played in the arenas and when it was played on TV, so at this point, this was getting played on TV. So I guess the movie Midnight Express must have been in in the Turner archive, they must have owned it because they used it when they first came in. Then they Mm. had a knockoff version for a while. And then in 1990, even on the TV shows, they're back to using the actual track. Okay. Um, Yeah. So I think either it was queued at the wrong point. It it, it was that he either, it was queued up to start with the kick in and the guy hit the button late or Mm. he they came out early perhaps but yeah anyway um should we admire the mullets for a second it's oh the 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 hair from all four i i have jealousy for people that don't see me i've been having a receding hairline for many 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 moons you could still grow a mullet it's all down the back mate i'd look like did you ever watch uh babylon (laughs) five Do you know where I'm going with this? Yes. I look like a fucking... Oh God, I look like Lando from Babylon 5 <laughs> if I grew my hair out. I, I it have, wouldn't be so much business in the front, party in the back. It would be shop closed at the front because there's a party <laughs> at the back. It, when, when I don't cut my hair, I look like the world's shittest 1990s Wolverine impersonator. <laughs> incredible uh so (laughs) hair jealousy aside um i've always kind of thought stan lane looks like a mini lex luger i can get that yeah yeah he's he's got quite a similar face like they both had the feathery blonde mullet around this time uh they both had like similar attires uh particularly once uh luger and the midnights both got into their neon phase uh anyway so uh, I, i will say I struggled occasionally telling Lane and Eaton apart because, my God, those blonde mullets are confusing. Uh, now, don't take it the wrong way. The clue is to look at the bottom half because Eaton always wears long tights and Lane always wears trunks. I did not know that. I did not do that. Well, there we go. Uh, so the Midnights jump the Southerners before the bell and the fight spills out, so jump the Southerners. They're all fucking Southerners. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the fight spills outside. Armstrong gives Eaton the OSW cheeky toe up the hole on the way back in. I noticed, like, gets him right between the cheeks with his toe. Um, uh, I also noticed throughout this match, Armstrong has a habit of getting a bit excited and forgetting what he's supposed to be doing next. So, like, he drop kicks Eaton and steps forward to pin him, but then realizes, oh shit, I'm supposed to be on the top rope and runs in the opposite direction. Um, Smothers tags in and he too bests Eaton using a back fist and thrust kicks to knock him down a couple of times. Um, Lane finally tags in and we get the spot 
I will always remember and never forget from this match, the Stan Lane versus Tracy Smothers karate oh, showdown. It's incredible. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I love it. it. It's the thing I have... It, this, when I think of this match, this is the section I think of. So, Lane... <clears throat> Christ, what happened there? <laughs> Lane does uh, some stretches and shows off his Yokogiri sidekick, uh, and then they square up to each other in a stance, like with their forearms crossed, uh, and Lane backfists Smothers in the head for a big pop, and Smothers kind of staggers off and sells. He comes back for round two, and this time he's quicker off the draw, but Lane blocks the backfist uh, and scores with one of his own. Uh, he follows up with three kicks, but Smothers blocks the fourth. Uh, Lane pulls an amazing, oh shit, I'm in trouble face, please don't hurt me. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, uh, but gets hit with three backfists, uh, and then Smothers take down both midnights with sidekicks, and the crowd, for the first time, go nuts for the baby faces. Um... Cornette nearly has a heart attack when Tracy threatens to kick him too, and he calls a strategy meeting in the heel corner. And this is the one of the things I love about the Midnight Express. So they communicate. Mm. Uh, don't get me wrong. So there are lots of great tag teams around the world today, and Lord knows one of my favourite styles is the Dragon Gate Multiman. But a lot of the time, these teams don't communicate in the ring. It's like everybody has a psychic connection with their partners, mm. and they're always in the right place for the next double team. Midnight Express strategize, improvise, plot, communicate, and give each other direction when one of them has an idea. The the other bit that I loved is um, the bit when Eaton is in there with uh, Smothers a bit earlier than what we said. Mm. Eaton is constantly trying different tactics. Mm. E for Eaton and Lane, because uh, while Smothers is in the ring, Eaton and Lane are trying so many different ideas. Mm to try to find something that works to take down Smothers. And I love that as a detail because you don't really get that much in tag wrestling that I've seen. It's always, we've got one strategy, we're going to do it. It works yeah. first time. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, speaking of trying different tactics, the director from Cornet here appears to be, drop that karate shit and just wrestle him. Well, that doesn't go well for Stan Lane either, uh, and he's forced to poke, uh, uh, forced to poke Smothers in the eye and scramble for the tag. And then Eaton comes in, and he gets arm dragged and gets kicked around ringside. Uh, the heels cheating gets foiled, and they run a fast-paced spot that sees Armstrong hit both midnights simultaneously with the top rope crossbody. And then the baby faces try variations of the dog pile pin on both guys. And again, the crowd are now going nuts for the baby faces. Remember, 10 minutes ago, they did not give a shit about Steve Armstrong and Tracy Smothers. Yeah. Um, Cornet. Also, at this point, mm. Smothers is still not tagged out yet. No. Uh, Cornet, apoplectic at ringside, yelling at the Midnights. They've got to get it together or they're going to lose the titles. So he's put right in front of the camera. He's putting stakes on this match. Commentary keeps saying that Midnight Express are the only team to be world and US tag team champions simultaneously. Sort of. Uh, they were US tag champions when they won the world belts from Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard in their, in their, that team's last match in the NWA before they went to the WWF to become mm. the Brain Busters on September the 10th, 1988 and were forced to immediately vacate the US titles. <laughs> So they were double champions for about an hour. <laughs> uh, it's teamwork that finally gives the Midnights the advantage. 
Eaton Blind takes lane mid O'Connor roll, and as Cornette has the ref, Stan flings Smothers over the top rope, which is the DQ under the NWA slash WCW rules at the time. A rule that would not be dropped by WCW until the middle of 1998. The fuck? Yeah. Um, uh, Smothers gets smashed into the railings. Corny jabs him in the throat with the racket handle for good measure before Lane knocks him off the apron and he takes a massive flying back bump off the apron into the guardrail again. Oh, yeah. It's 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 a proper guardrail bump. Just yeah. And the crowd love it. So now... The Midnights go to work. And this is the well-oiled machine part I was talking about before. Quick tags, double teams, taking advantage of the ref's blind side. Mm. Uh, I liked Lane pettily getting his revenge by trapping Tracy in the corner and using karate kicks while he can't defend himself. Oh, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's great. Smothers, for his part, as the babyface, never truly out of the game. He's punching and kicking and going for his corner whenever he has wind in him rather than just being a punching bag. Ricky Steamboat rule as has yeah. been mentioned, ad nauseum. Uh, Eaton slingshots Tracy into the ring from the apron, and there's a double... I think he it's into, kind of into a double-arm suplex from Lane, uh, and then Smothers gets knocked outside again. When Smothers gets back up on the apron, Eaton goes to do the same thing for a second time, but Smothers holds on and pulls back and shoots Bobby over the top to the floor, mm-hmm. only to get clotheslined by Stan Lane when he gets in the ring. Smothers does manage to ram Lane's head into the turnbuckle a few times, but gets thumbed in the eye. This is impo- it might not sound important. This is important. Mm. The Midnight's go for a double backdrop, but Smothers is able to pull them over into a double sunset flip because he just managed to stun them with those little bits of offense just mm. before this and roll to his corner for the hottest tag of Steve Armstrong's life. <laughs> he gets the pop of his career as he is pinballing Lane and Eaton all over the ring. Smothers wipes out Eaton and they hit Lane with their trademark dropkick version of Demolition's finisher. Uh, but the referee is too busy dealing with the Smothers and Eaton brawl and it only gets a one count. Well, hold pushes. on, isn't it a dropkick version of the Heart Attacks finisher? It is, it is, yes. See, I told you, oh, WWF but, is not, not my nostalgia. Yes, you're right, it's the Heart Attack rather than the decapitation, yeah. yes. So... Uh, Eaton shoves Armstrong off the turnbuckle so he necks himself on the top rope uh, and then the Midnights hit their patented finisher the rocket launcher which is Eaton doing a splash off the top rope with uh, Lane assisting with a throw uh, this time the ref is occupied with Lane and Smothers so that only gets a two so they've each kicked out of each other's finish mm. uh, to a massive pop each time it must be said as the Midnights and Cornet harangue the ref Smothers takes the downed Armstrong's place, and on VHS at least, Mm. uh, it's convincing enough because they're in matching gear, are exactly the same height and build, and have identical light curly brown mullets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Smothers uses this to surprise Eaton with a small package, and Lane has to sprint over to save the titles. Uh, Armstrong bops Lane out to the apron, and the referee, trying to regain control, kind of escorts escorts him the long way round the ring to get him back to his corner. Uh, meanwhile, Eaton shoots Smothers off the ropes. Lane, stop me if you've heard this before, clobbers him in the back of the head with an enzugiri, and Bobby Eaton wraps him up into his own small package for the pin to what I called a powerful mixed reaction. Like, in, well, first time watching this, like, I thought it was like a, a pop, but you can hear booze in it as well. It, the, the bit that struck me is I'm kind of, I'm coming into this knowing that the Midnight Express are like, this huge, massive heel team that they had generated this much heat. 
Yeah. I was surprised how mixed the reaction was and how it was kind of, they weren't getting 100% vociferous booze. Your point about like the Baltimore thing, I, I can maybe see that. Yeah. So um, I think it was just before this, the Midnights had come off a, had actually come off a baby face run. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they were the baby faces in the feud with the original Midnight Express that oh, I yeah. mentioned before. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, there was another famous angle where Cornette was managing the the team of the Dynamic Dudes. Do you know who the Dynamic Dudes were? I know who one of the Dynamic Dudes was. It was yes. the uh, the now-gone Mr. Laurinaitis, uh, Johnny yes. Ace. With, Johnny Ace. And the, uh, with a the other one was... The other one was Shane Douglas, neither of whom could ride their skateboards. And Jim Cornette was their manager as a babyface, and he eventually turned on them to join the heel Midnight Express again to reach mm. to join back up with them to a gigantic babyface pop. They were heels, but like people recognized what good wrestlers they were and oh, pop yeah. for them. Um, and this was like they kind of managed to towards. It was. This was less about, I think, getting a heel reaction for the Midnights mm. than it was getting the crowd into the Southern Boys. Yeah. Um, I know it's 1990. I I love this match. Like I said, uh, I, I've said it at least once. My Great American Bash 1990 VHS tape wore out and broke on this match because uh, I watched it so much. Um, hey, look, it was the 90s. There was no internet. I didn't have that many wrestling tapes. And mm. this was a really good match. Yeah. So I know this is 1990, but to me, this is this is a top example of 1980s American tag team wrestling. Mm. And it follows that formula that I talked about before. Like they make their much less experienced babyface opponents look great for 10 minutes before cutting one of them off and taking him apart. And then bumping like crazy for him during the comeback, making you think they're going to lose, and then mm. using underhanded tactics to pull it out the bag. I really, having watched it again, I really regret not nominating this myself. So I've come into this match. I've not seen this before. Mm -hmm. I've not seen the Midnight's before. I've seen very little Southern Tag Wrestling. I might not have seen any Southern Tag Wrestling. I've seen the Young Pistols match at some point. I can't remember how I saw it. Uh, mm. Young Pistols being another the name for the Wild Eyed Southern Boys. Yeah, yeah, they got uh, they got renamed at the start of 1991. Uh, I think it was a kind of a way they did kind of turn heel around that point as well, and I think it was a way of differentiating them from being the babyface Southern Boys. But I still remember them on uh, TV in 1992 called the Young Pistols and Babyfaces. So as I say, first time seeing. Uh, the Midnight's first time really seeing the formula. I'm a guy that got into wrestling in 1999, completely mm -hmm. different animal style. I love this. This was, this was all I wanted out of this kind of match. You've got the, the faces are full of fire. It's like, there's something about the faces jogging on the spot because they've got so much energy that they can't yeah, stand still. And there's nobody in reach to punch. <laughs> there's no one in reach to punch. So we're just burning off energy. It's like yeah. the, the hot tag is great. Um, Armstrong is perfect 
in how he's used because you can tell that he's the weakest of the wrestlers by far in this match. I did notice that. I wanted to call him, I wanted to say he looked green, but he's like, he's six or seven years in at this point and he shouldn't be green, but he is, he is most definitely, let's call him the least good of the four. Yes, he is. He's the lesser of the four. Um, but, this is what I expect some style match to be in terms of the structure, in terms of the heat, in terms of mm. the, what I did not expect, honestly, was the the speed of the action. The, I mean, my honestly, this was a super kick party in 1990. In yeah, all it kind of was, except except they called them savat kicks and pretended it was karate. They called them savat kicks. Yeah, they they were a little less polished, shall we say. Yeah. But for all, and, and this is my take, for all of uh, Cornette's hatred of the Young Bucks and Superkick Party, this was a match that really felt like it had as many superkicks as a Young Bucks match. I think that is one of his failings, is that he cannot see how his most famous charges have influenced the people he now hates. Yeah. And he hates them for doing essentially the same thing that his team were doing 30, 40 years ago. Like yeah. I mentioned the arena matches with like the, the rock and rolls and the fantastics. They were like this. Mm. They moved at this pace for 20 minutes solid. Like that was part of the appeal of the Midnight Express was they moved that fast. And what I'll say about it is, yes, they're moving fast and maybe... Some of the execution, and I think a little bit of that's on Smothers' part uh, and definitely a little bit on Armstrong's part. But maybe the execution isn't perfect at times, but this moved. It was so quick. It, mm. But also the details, especially from the Midnights, the, the just the little details, the facial expressions, the, mm. the timing of when to do the iPod. This is, this is a team that know exactly what they're doing and know how to get the exact most out of the formula. And it's, honestly, I'm glad that there is a Southern tag match on this list, because if there was not a Southern tag match on this list, it would actually feel like something was missing. And yeah, and for yeah. me, I've not seen like the Fantastics matches. I've not seen the rock and roll matches. I can't tell you if they were better than this one or they were better examples of the style. Mm. But I utterly love this match and I probably do need to actually go out of my way and watch uh, some more Midnight stuff. I'll find you some stuff. I'll hook you up. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm exact, exactly the same. To you. I'm really glad you enjoyed this, actually. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of my... I, 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 can't, I don't know if I want to call it one of my favourite matches, but like the more I think about it, the more I realise how much I enjoy this. Um, <laughs> it is like... In much the way as we said, um, uh, for example, uh, it was the Jaguar Kota versus uh, La Galactica match. Mm. Wasn't necessarily must-see in and of itself, it, but it was an excellent example of that particular style of match. And I yeah. think this is that. And it just happened to be on a big pay-per-view stage, which is why people remember it and think it's much like far fewer people have seen those, those 84 matches, 1984, 83 matches with the rock and rolls and the fantastics than have seen this, for example, as we've said, there's a reason why all the midnight matches that were nominated were 88 to 90. Yeah, exactly. 
So as we mentioned, uh, the Southern Boys would be renamed as the Young Pistols at the start of 91 and stayed together until Armstrong left for the WWF in 1992. He would become Lance Cassidy there, having a whopping seven televised matches in the four (laughs) months he wrestled for the World Wrestling Federation. He would then work for Smoky Mountain Wrestling for a couple of years before heading back to WCW in 1995, being used largely as a TV jobber along with Brother Scott until 2000. Tracy Smothers, well, he did everything. Smoky Mountain, Memphis, IWA Japan. Uh, I think he, is he on the original King of the Deathmatch show that Cactus Jack wins? I can't remember. I'm not sure. He was definitely there around the same time Hmm. and had matches against Foley in IWA Japan. He was in WWF, ECW, WCW, FMW, XPW, IWA Mid-South, TNA, GCW, every tiny independent promotion that would book him. He came over here for one PW and some indies and was a hit over here. There was a time where, like, if you threw a rock in the UK or the US, you would hit a poster that was advertising a Tracy Smothers <laughs> match. <laughs> like... Like I'd say like mid 2000s, like 2005, 2009, maybe like late 2000s, perhaps 2005, 2009, I'd say he wrestled right up until he was diagnosed with lymphoma towards the end of 2019 and mm. would pass away in October 2020, one year after that diagnosis. So he had his last match in September 2019 uh, after starting in 17, uh, 82, so 82 to 2019 inclusive. Jesus. That's a hell of a long career. And he went everywhere after being dicked around by wcw one too many times and turning up to an october tv taping to find they are booked to lose four times the midnights have a chat and lane and cornet leave wcw immediately on october the 29th 1990 hmm. eaton sticks around because i think he was the only one of the three who had children like i had a fa- he was married had kids to yeah. to feed and job security um and he would be employed do- by wcw full-time until 2000 uh mostly as like a a solid mid-card guy and in a lot of tag teams most notably um with arn anderson when they were both part of the dangerous alliance Mm. Uh, and then as earl robert eaton alongside lord stephen regal who is now william regal as the blue bloods who had some tremendously entertaining skits where uh regal tries to make an english gentleman out of uh bobby eaton from alabama Showing him proper etiquette and trying to introduce him to the Queen and those sort of things. Bobby Eaton has another match that we will cover on this podcast. Yes, he does. Oh, God, doing the graphic for that one's going to be difficult. Just do the background. Just yeah, the maybe. Background yeah, maybe. Uh, widely regarded as one of the best tag team wrestlers of all time and one of the nicest men in any locker room and a pro's pro Bobby Eaton unfortunately passed away in August 2021, just a month after his wife died. Stanley would head back to the USWA, which is now what the Memphis Territory was going as for a year before a good friend started up Smoky Mountain Wrestling, where he would team with Tom Pritchard, as we mentioned, as the original Heavenly Bodies. He would eat the pin in a loser of the fall leave Smoky Mountain match in May 1993 after signing with the WWF as a TV announcer. What? Yeah. Um, but before he truly ended up there, he did a tour of WAR, meaning the unlikely match of Ultimo Dragon and Mil Mascaras versus Earthquake John Tenter and Stan Lane is a thing that happened, <laughs> as are singles matches with both Ultimo and Mascaras. 
Uh, but that was it. Apart from sporadic appearance, uh, appearances up until 2005, he retired. He commentated for the WWF until 95, and then he became a powerboat racing commentator. Oh, uh, and he might be the father of a Republican congresswoman. I'll leave you to Google that. <laughs> God, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. James Mark Cornett would form Smoky Mountain Wrestling in 1991. And as you've probably gathered, everyone in this match would work there for varying stints of time, mm. uh, including Eaton while he was still with WCW. They did, uh, there were some angles on WCW TV in 1993 and the Heavenly Bodies Rock and Roll Express feud crossed over into WCW for a time. So, and then so did Arne Smoky Anderson, Mountain have relationships with WCW and WWF almost exactly the same time? Yes, they did. In 1993, one version of the Heavenly Bodies appeared on WCW television. Then Stan Lane lost that loser of the fall must leave Smoky Mountain match and was replaced by Jimmy Del Rey. And that version of the Heavenly Bodies wrestled the Steiner Brothers at SummerSlam 1993. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is, around this time, another match that I kind of wish I'd nominated for the list. An incredible, for the time, three-way, nine-man tag team street fight match that headlines a big Smoky Mountain show. It is the stud stable of um, uh, Robert Fuller, who would be Colonel Robert Parker in WCW as a manager. Mm. Uh, Jimmy Golden, who would be Bunkhouse Buck in WCW. And Dutch Mantel, who people might remember as um, the bloke who managed Jack Swagger in w in WWE, versus the Heavenly Bodies and Bobby Eaton. So that's um, uh, Lane, Pritchard and Eaton versus mm. the Rock and Roll Express and Arn Anderson. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, that's another match. I, I don't have, I don't think I have a copy anymore. I had it on VHS. Mm. That's a match I watched a lot as well. It's so much fun. Bobby Eaton tries to escape the carnage by climbing a basketball net and gets pulled <laughs> down by his trousers and loses his trousers in the process. Um, so yeah, this uh, Smoky Mountain was initially a small, hot, successful territory, but by 1995, like the business was changing and it was forced to close its doors. Uh, at this time, he was already working for the WWF as a manager, commentator, and on the booking team. He was positioned near the top of the card and would manage people like Vader, Yokozuna, Owen Hart, and the British Bulldog. He would also become the booker and part owner of Ohio Valley Wrestling when it was the WWF slash WWE's developmental territory, including turning out the classic class of 2001 mm. of Dave Batista, Randy Orton, Brock Lesnar, and John Cena. Uh, he'd be an on-screen authority figure and backstage booker for TNA and show up as manager and commentator all over the place for years. And now, as we mentioned today, he complains about modern wrestling on a, modern, on a podcast that's far more successful than this one. So that, I think, just about wraps up the Midnight Express versus the Southern Boys. Uh, anything else to add before we take this home? What, what I've liked about this episode is we've done a good job of uh, giving history lessons on various bits and having experts come in. Um, Dylan did a good job with shoot style. Sarah's done a fantastic job with uh, the Joshi. 
I like the way we've got our in-house WCW uh, 1990s expert. So thank <laughs> this is actually, for me, this has been a really nice, just listen and uh, it's another good history episode. So thank you. Excellent. Well, I hope uh, other people uh, feel the same. So, oh man, I'm in a bind because I can naturally segue into what's happening next week from here or this is usually where the plugs go. Let's segway, segway. Ah, damn you. All right, fine. So next week, not so much of the history lesson. The plan is to have a guest again and talk about our most up-to-date match so far. Sergey Olderman from ProWrestlingMusings.com uh, will be here to discuss Pac versus Orange Cassidy from AEW Revolution 2020. So uh, make sure you're here for that or we'll gently kick you in the shins. Uh, as for the plugs, uh, I am at Kieran Edits on Twitter. Mark is at monkey underscore buckles. And this show is at must see matches. You can also hit up linktr.ee slash uh, slash. I'm not going to go back and redo that. Uh, <laughs> must see matches. Uh, and that will give you uh, the link to the entire 1066 match list. The 104 we are covering on this show links to Mark's uh, uh, writings on post and a whole load of other stuff to do with us and the show. So that is it. Uh, please come back. Oh, I need to plug something else that I am doing. It hasn't been recorded yet, but it will be out by the time this comes out. Uh, I am due to record an episode of GCP with uh, Andy Ogden, and we are going to talk about something from the history of British wrestling on television from the year 2000. <sighs> We're going to be reviewing the first two episodes of Transatlantic Wrestling Challenge. What the hell was that? Oh, you're going to have to listen. It's... Uh, it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. So, uh, yeah, we haven't recorded that yet, but it should be out by the time you hear this. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to talking about it with Andy. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so there we go. Yes, that should be everything. Uh, we've clumsily got through this outro, uh, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Stan Lane would head back to uh, the UWA. Uh, pfft, no, he wouldn't. <laughs> Stan Lane would head back to the UWA. Fuck, I did it again. <laughs> <laughs>